Hello everybody, this is Dr. Vince Gutierrez here from movementthinker.org. So like I said before, I'm going over some of the older articles with a little bit more experience under my belt than when I wrote this stuff um, six years ago. So this article has to do with um, directional preference versus core stabilization. So I'll start off by taking some quotes from it and then I'll read what I wrote six years ago and see if there's anything that I want to add or change because some things have changed. Quote, directional preference classification is characterized by a reduction in distal pain and or observation of the centralization phenomenon with the application of repeated or sustained end range loading strategies to the spine that remain better after assessment. All right, um, next sentence. Centralization is defined as a progressive change in pain from a more distal location to a more proximal location that remains better after applying repeated or sustained end range movements to the spine. Hallmark characteristics of the McKenzie derangement classification. Okay, so a directional preference means that when we move you in a specific direction, we see the centralization phenomenon or we see improvements after moving in that direction. And the reason why we can't just use centralization anymore is because there appears that there are directional preferences of the extremities and the extremities don't centralize. So we can't just use centralization as the only key to directional preference. And you know, and, and, and again, when you're looking at some of the research, patients who have a directional preference will centralize, patients who centralize will have a directional preference, but not all directional preferences centralize, right? At least not immediately. Because sometimes you may see, uh, sorry, I am totally said I was going to read and then <laughs> I'm just jumping in because you may see changes in range of motion before you see changes in symptoms. And that is still a directional preference uh, changes for the positive. I'm hoping uh, changes for the negative would not be a directional preference. All right. So then let's see what I wrote. There is no doubt that a directional preference correlates with great outcomes. Yeah, uh, you could see that from um, Wernicke's research. You could see that from uh, Skite's research. You could see that from Audrey Long's articles. So yeah, I mean, we, we know that that happens. Uh, there is no doubt that centralization correlates with great outcomes. Oh, I wrote it twice. Okay. Uh, the th <laughs> oh, centralization and directional preference. Okay. The thing that needs to happen is that therapists need to be trained to see these during the initial evaluation. Not a lot of therapists are actually trained for directional preference. Um, and they're not trained very well for centralization based off of what I've seen with students coming out of school. You know, when you look at, man, I totally said I was going to read and I'm not going to read off this. I just, I just can't. Sorry. When you, when you look at the research that's come out in terms of like prevalence data, about 80% of patients are classified and about 80% of those patients can be classified as derangements, right? Or those patients that symptoms they rapidly change they can centralize and peripheralize so like if you put those numbers to the research you're, you're in the high 50 percent to you know low 60s of every patient that walks through your door so essentially five to six out of ten patients with back issues that walk through your door are going to um, have a symptom that's rapidly changing uh, and and can peripheralize and centralize and so 
when you move a patient, you know, especially if you're looking at the spine, you have so many options, you know, like, like just basics. You have sagittal plane, you know, flexion and extension. You have frontal plane, you know, side bending and side gliding, depending on which levels of the spine you're looking at. You have rotation, not a ton, right? Especially if you're looking at the lumbar spine, not a ton, but you have rotation. And then you have combinations of, right? Combinations thereof. You can have flexion and laterals, extension and laterals, rotations and flexions, and what have you, right? So you can have combinations thereof. And so you, you have to play within those to see if you have a directional preference, especially if you have a patient whose symptoms are fast changing. And this is one of the things that when, when I see a patient, if I see that I can change their symptoms for the worse, well, then I'm going to keep exploring to see if there's anything that I can do to change her symptoms for the better and if it's reproducible over the course of time, right? So, like, if I can make her symptoms worse, eh, it sucks, but um, I'm still looking, right? I'm not giving up yet. And if I can make your symptoms better and then make them worse and then make them better again with the same movement, all right, we got something. But if I can make them better and then make them worse and not make them better again, well, fluke, you know? And uh, I don't like working with flukes because flukes, they don't give me much information, right? Other than the fact that I might not be able to help this patient. All right. Um, I am going to go back and read this just to make sure I didn't miss anything here. A majority of patients demonstrate a classification using the McKenzie method. Okay, that's what I was talking about. 80% of patients uh, can be classified walking through your door. Uh, this is based off of the research of Stephen May. Um, this is older research. I think there's newer research now out by, uh, oh, it'll come back to me, H. Um, I think the last name starts with an H. It'll come back to me. Uh, the derangement classification is the largest classification syndrome based off of the, the previous research, but there are other syndromes, and the derangement syndrome um, in the research is symptoms are rapidly changing. Uh, mechanics may rapidly change, meaning you know the patient can get blocked to one motion or another, or a motion can rapidly free up that the patient didn't previously have. Uh, symptoms can centralize or peripheralize. And again, uh, centralization, peripheralization, getting back to that, it's it's not something that I don't think students are taught this very well uh, coming into the clinic. You know, that's uh, they've heard the term. They kind of know it, but they can't identify it when it happens, right? They can't see it in front of them. You know, for them, it's, ooh, pain, pain no good, ooh, let's stop. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and that's what I've seen in my experience, you know, if... Um, Let's say you're doing a, a flexion rotation, but it increases their back pain, even though it decreases their leg symptoms. You know, some some students would stop because they see increased pain, but they didn't necessarily ask where the pain is at. You know, if the patient says, oh, that hurts, um, that might be a cue to stop, which is fine. Um, but, you know, if we never ask the follow up questions as to what's happening to the symptoms, you know, we may not know whether or not it was the right choice to stop. Okay. Let's next quote. There is some evidence that improvement in size and recruitment of the muscles of the spine, including the transverse abdominis, is associated with improved function in the short term when patients with low back pain receive motor control exercises compared to general exercise or spinal manipulation. However, increases in transverse abdominis and lumbar multifidus thickness using real-time ultrasound have also been observed immediately in one week following spinal manipulation in people with low back pain, suggesting that increases in transverse abdominis recruitment may not be specific to motor control exercises. Boy, there was a lot said, and I was rolling my eyes during a lot of it. <laughs> um, transverse abdominis, okay, that's your girdle-type muscle, right? It's a, It holds your innards in muscle. 
it's it's likened to a weight belt. You know, it, it wraps around from your back to your stomach, um, and it and it helps keep your innards in. Is the easiest way for me to say it. Uh, it's like a girdle, and some there are some beliefs out there that strengthening this muscle is going to help back pain. Okay, we don't have strong research that when we strengthen the transverse abdominis, we help back pain, and and I think we have to go on historical context for this, right? And when you uh, this goes back to correlation doesn't equal causation, right? When you uh, when you take a group of patients with back pain and you compare them to a healthy group, and you you look at the transverse abdominis under ultrasound, you tend to see a smaller transverse abdominis or not as thick transverse abdominis. And so the the theory was, well, this muscle is not as strong or not as thick. The cross section is not as big, so it doesn't it's not able to produce as much force. Uh, so therefore, this must be the cause of back pain, right? And gosh, if life were only that simple, you know, it's it's I, one we can't narrow it down to one thing being the cause of back pain in a majority of cases. You know, like maybe five to ten percent of the cases. We can say, well, you have one thing that's causing your back pain, and that one thing may be really bad, right? That's that's how we know because it's really bad, <laughs> and that might be caught. That might be the only thing causing your back pain, but outside of that, you know, it's it's typically a a multitude of things that work together to um, produce this pain signal or give you this threat signal that uh, that causes you to have back pain, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be one thing. But the research has tagged that, and you'll see a lot of research on transverse abdominus stuff over the, especially from the 80s, early, early uh, late 80s, early 90s. You don't see it so much into the 2000s because it, it seems like the theories have gone away from that, even though um, it's still being taught. Uh, let me see anything else here. Yeah, this was actually pretty interesting to me because I didn't, at, at the time, I wasn't aware of this, that doing a, a spinal manipulation can change your um, transverse abdominis and, and multifidus. Uh, multifidus, it's, um, for those of you who aren't like in the know, uh, the multifidus is a muscle that sits on your spine. It's creates a, a triangle on the spine to give it rotational stability, rotational, um, I don't want to say power because it's such a small muscle, so it's not going to generate power, but it will generate strength and stability. Um, so it, it doesn't generate a lot of speed, you know, when you look at the length of the muscle based off of its um, where it starts and where it ends. But, um, but it can provide stability, right? And so you'll see a lot, of, and, and these muscles get worked. You'll typically see them work with, um, a therapist will use exercises like a bird dog um, or where you're, sorry, using terms in the know, um, where patients are on their hands and knees and they're either kicking the leg out or kicking one arm out or kicking out the arm and the hand at the same time uh, to, to try to throw the spine off balance and force these uh, rotational muscles, the multifidi and the rotatories, these rotational muscles to, to kick in and stabilize the spine. But what I found interesting, which I didn't know, was that following a spinal manipulation, these muscles can actually, they get thicker. Um, over the course of a week and, and immediately following the the um, the manipulation or grade five mobilization and that's like earth shattering to me because previously I only thought that muscles would change their um, cross-sectional area meaning the thickness of the muscle based off of you know strengthening or progressive overload exercises which um, muscle gets stronger right uh 
which made sense to me with my, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm a, I'm a meathead at heart. So that all made sense to me, but this one didn't necessarily make sense to me. So, cause, cause that means that it may not matter how strong you are in terms of how big your muscles are. Right. And I think we're seeing that now, you know, with other things come into play, um, in terms of blood flow, blood flow restriction and stuff. But, um, yeah, at the time, man, earth shattering. Okay. Let's see here. This is what I wrote back then. A muscle's ability to contract is not dependent on its size. A muscle's ability to contract is based off of that muscle's ability to receive the nervous system input from the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system. Uh, there should be something that allows for better neural activity. Should there be something that allows for better neural activity as we expect to see an in increase in muscle contraction and possibly, okay, you know, so I actually went into the science here which is cool. So uh, I'll use the analogy and I'm not taking credit for this analogy because I learned it from Annie O'Connor. And I think she said she learned it from her dad, <laughs> right? Um, who's not in medicine, but uh, I give Annie a ton of credit for where I am at in my career and, you know, the progression that I've made over the years um, because I've, you know, had the opportunity to study with Annie, you know, on a monthly basis, uh, and along with a bunch of other people who I always give credit to. Um, you know, if you were part of that Chicagoland MDT study group back in the early 2000s, mid, um, before 2010, you know, Tom Lotus, Annie O'Connor, Melissa Kolsky, um, Ella, um, gosh, just, there's so many, Bill Curtis, uh, there's so many names, right, that, that I can go into. And gosh, it was a great learning environment. Um, I credit that group with building me into the therapist that I am today. I know this is a tangent, but that's okay. Um, with building me into the therapist that I am today because, you know, not because they were so much smarter than I was, which they were, you know. And, and I, tell this, I tell this story all the time, right? And, and I'll tell it again here. <laughs> Tom Lotus, love him, right? Uh uh, doctor chiropractic works for um, Midwest Ortho at Rush. Great guy, love him. I still refer him patients, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, I was still a student at the time under Bill Curtis at um, uh, PT and Spine in Tenley Park, which is a great place to go if uh, if you need physical therapy. Um, it, you know, if you don't want to see me, you can go see Bill. Um, <laughs> I'm not offended. And uh, anyway, so we're at the meeting, and this patient has lateral knee pain. Uh, for those of you not in the know, that means the outside of their knee hurts when they're running. Okay, and and I'm sitting next to Tom, and this is like one of my first times ever meeting Tom, right? <laughs> He's great, love him, love him dearly. You just got to know the sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> and and so the patient has pain running, and you know we go through the history, and like I'm a student, and in my head I think I got the answer because it's what we've been taught in school is that when the knee bends to 30 degrees, you get the IT band can rub over the the, the lateral condyle, creating pain in the lateral aspect of the knee. I'm like I'm done, got it. You know, like, like that's what was going on in my head. You know, it was like first I wanted to be the first one to get the answer. And uh, <laughs> and so, you know, they put the patient on the treadmill, patient reproduced knee pain. And and so Tom said, hey, kid, eh, he didn't know who I was at the time. Hey, kid, what do you think it is? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that is a, a IT band friction syndrome. <laughs> I, I, like even still as I give the answer it kills me like I laugh at you know how how young and dumb I was at the time and uh, I just didn't know any better right and, and and that group brought me a long way and so I gave Tom the answer and and <laughs> classic classic Tom says all right kid don't talk again and just watch <laughs> and like at the time 
I thought I knew what I was doing, right? I was just graduating PT school. I was going to be done with PT school in a couple of months. I must know everything, right? And so I thought I had the answer. I was very wrong. I was not even in the right general vicinity of what was causing the pain. So the pain was coming from a spinal origin, right? If you read um, the Xbox study, you'll see... Um, that there are pains that come that pains that can be in the leg or the arm that aren't coming from the leg or the arm and at the time i didn't know any better so uh yeah the patient had symptoms that were coming from the back and the patient responded to a side glide in standing surprisingly which was you know and it's still kind of surprising for me that a patient responds to side glide in standing that doesn't have a shift but anyway not quite sure how i got there <laughs> but it makes for a great story right uh, let me go back and reread what i just read uh, muscle's ability to contract is not dependent on its size. It's Oh, I got there through Annie O'Connor. Okay, so getting back to Annie's analogy that she learned from her dad. A muscle's ability is, a muscle can only contract if it can receive the information from the brain telling it to contract. And, and that information from the brain comes in terms of electrical impulses, right? And so if the electricity is not getting to the muscle, and there could be a lot of reasons why the electricity is not getting to the muscle, the same way there could be a lot of reasons the electricity is not getting to your lamp, right? And, and this is the analogy that she used uh, over and over that made sense to me because, you know, I blue, blue collar background. Um, if your lamp is not working, it could be the switch, right? Where the, the neuromuscular junction is at. So it could, there could be a problem at the neuromuscular junction. It could be the cord going into the outlet. So it could be the nerve, the peripheral nerve that goes from that muscle back up an arm or a leg up to the spine. Okay, it, it could be the power to the house is out, right? So like there's no power in the neighborhood, meaning your brain function is not working. You've got no power coming to anything. Um, or it could be happening somewhere in the spine. And so that's, you know, somewhere from the... Gosh, now of course I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to remember the names of all the electrical components, and that's all right. I'm not an electrician, but um, circuit breaker. There it is. Your, your breaker box. Or the problem. Gosh, I could totally hear those guys making fun of me now. Uh, Vince, how did you forget that analogy? Uh, the, there could be a problem from the breaker box to the outlet, right? And so any one of those things could cause pro the disruption of electricity to flow to the muscle. And so if we don't have electricity, we don't have the muscle contraction. And if we don't have that, we can't expect to see a, a large, that muscle is going to atrophy over the course of time. Okay. All that to say, we may not have to train the muscle in order to get a muscle to contract better. We may have to make the muscle contract better through nerve activity, meaning practice makes perfect or perfect practice makes perfect and just keep practicing a motor pattern over and over again, practicing a movement. I did not think that this was going to take me more than 15 minutes, and it looks like it is. Okay, so we'll keep going. Next quote. Gosh, I did long quotes back then, too. Uh, normally, now I'm like just taking snippets of an article. These are, these are long quotes. Uh, the McKenzie method was just prescribed according to the principles described by McKenzie in May. That's the textbook, for those of you who aren't familiar. Delivered by two therapists who had obtained the level of credentialed therapist from the McKenzie Institute International. Mechanical therapy, including patient and therapist generated forces, utilizing repeated or sustained and range loading strategies in loaded or unloaded postures, according to the patient's directional preference, that guided by symptom response, 
The aim was to reduce, centralize, and abolish peripheral symptoms. Once symptoms centralized, any movement loss was then treated with repeated and end range movements in the direction of movement loss. Uh, received a copy of Treat Your Own Back to supplement treatment and self-management. You know, I still use uh, Treat Your Own Back. I have a lot of my patients, gosh, I should do that on Amazon, right? And uh, gosh, I need to do that. Um, yeah, I have a lot of my patients just go out and buy Treat Your Own Back, especially if they fit that paradigm, right? And it's interesting because uh, I was treating a husband and a wife, and the husband has back pain but also has vascular symptoms. The wife has sciatica with a directional preference. <laughs> and, uh, uh, oh, the husband also had spinal stenosis, right? And I'm not treating the husband. I'm not treating the husband at all, right, during that time. And um, But the wife was responding beautifully to extension. <laughs> so the husband's like, yeah. So I decided to do the exercises that my wife was doing. And that's when I got to explain classification and directional preference to this couple because... Just because you you see one person respond to it doesn't mean that everybody's going to respond to it. And this is one of the problems that I have with uh, traditional PT is that you'll see a lot of the same exercises performed over and over again for patients with back pain. Even though some exercises might actually make a patient's pain worse, um, or especially if you look at uh, Audrey Long's article, they might make a patient's pain worse. And the, the symptoms are easily reversible if you just give them the right exercise. So not a huge fan of the shake and bake or cookie cutter based exercises for back pain, but some patients just need to move, right? And we just got to figure out which patient that is, you know, which patients just need to move versus which patients might need a specific treatment um, modality or specific treatment intervention versus you just need to move. Okay. Uh, what else do we got? So yeah, I use treat your own back still frequently in the clinic and I, you know, I have patients go buy it usually off Amazon. Um, all right, I'm going to break this down. The McKenzie method was prescribed according to the principles described by McKenzie and May. It's a long book, right? It's two books, actually. And gosh, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm going to guess 600 pages. If you go to my YouTube page, I have a book report on those two books. It's fairly long. It's a few hours long. So if you're interested in listening to it, go to my YouTube channel. Um, delivered by two therapists to obtain the level of credentialed therapist from the McKenzie Institute International. So those who are credentialed, I'm credentialed. Those who are credentialed have, they're considered minimally competent. So, you know, it's the most proud I've ever been of being considered minimally competent. You know, I passed a test to be considered minimally competent. Um, but, you know, when you look at the other side of that, if you haven't passed the test, they consider you not competent <laughs> at all. So at least I'm minimally competent, right? Um, and, and that test is meant to, you know, demonstrate who at least understands the definitions, the principles of, of, of the system. Okay. And, and that's awesome. Uh, mechanical therapy is moving, right? Uh, including patient and therapist generated forces. So the patient can move or the therapist can push on the patient that can happen at any point in time. And so you have patient generated forces. The patient is moving. The patient is moving with speed. The patient is moving with active motion. The patient is moving through passive motion. Uh, and then therapist generated forces. The therapist is pushing on the patient in some manner. Um, utilizing repeated or sustained. So we can either have a patient do a movement a ton of times. And, you know, and gosh, this always comes back to me. Back in the early 2000s, uh, the McKenzie Institute International published... Uh, a little pamphlet called moving in the right direction and there was a um, gosh I don't remember what it was exactly but they, they 
some it was clinicians writing into this and and talking about how they use the system and what they do and what they find works the best and somewhere in there it was 120 repetitions per day is what they're looking for which is you know a little bit more than the 10 to 15 reps you know every two to three hours that's recommended in the textbook but ever since then you know i mean i i like 120 so 120 is a great number it's i mean it's a little bit better than 110 or 111 so i mean i like 120 130 just seems like way too much so yeah i like 120 (laughs) so even though it's anecdotal I'll, I'll, i'll tend to stick with it i'll give the patient like a range you know 10 to 15 reps um you know, up to about 120 a day. So we can use repeated or sustained end range loading, right? And sustained end range loading is staying in one position for a prolonged period of time. And we use that for some patients. You know, patients have a headache. We might use something like that. Um, patients have, they're crooked or they have a deformity. We might use something like that. So sometimes we place patients in positions and just leave them there. We'll come back and check on them every once in a while. Um I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We keep an eye on the patient <laughs> in some clinics while they're treating for others. Not in this one, but in some. <laughs> Gosh, I got to stop. All right. Um, and we do that according to the patient's directional preference, meaning that the patient is telling us that they're getting better or the patient is showing us that they're getting better. And that's how we're choosing which way we're going, either to therapist generated patient-generated force, repeated, sustained, standing, sitting, lying. So we're choosing all of that based off of the patient response. The aim was to reduce, centralize, and abolish peripheral symptoms. So essentially the aim is to turn the symptoms off or make the symptoms better, right? And you could demonstrate that through movement, right? The patient can have better range of motion or the patient can just say, hey, my symptoms aren't as bad as they were or my symptoms have moved closer to my spine. Moving on. Uh, I wrote some stuff there. Not really that important. Okay. Next quote. Initially, promotion of independent contraction of the deep stabilizing muscles. Gosh, if you could see me rolling my eyes again. Such as the transverse abdominis and multifidus was facilitated by pelvic floor contraction. Objectively, skill mastery of TRA recruitment was measured by palpation and visual assessment for a reduction of overactivity of the superficial trunk muscle. Practice daily, attend the physical therapy clinic twice a week for the first four weeks, and once per week for the remaining four weeks. Um, I'm going to read what I wrote first, because, gosh. All right, I'm going to read what I wrote. This is beat into students during PT school, understanding the impact of performing transverse abdominated dominus contractions on low back pain and it so is beat into students uh learning how to contract your transverse abdominus and that you need to be palpating inside the 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 rim of the asis to to feel this muscle tighten um gosh you could just the sarcasm in my voice you can you can see how much i hated that is all the feeling that you had to do Uh, The problem with this theory is that research is scant on cause and effect, and I kind of touched on that earlier. We know that patients with low back pain have smaller multifidi and transverse abdominus muscles, but we can't say chicken or the egg yet. We also can't say if the back back pain caused the smaller muscle or if the muscle was smaller and then it caused back pain you know more research needs to take place on this and i hate to gosh i hate to say more research needs to take place because i don't want to see more research on this um but you know if if somebody's got to make a definitive statement to say we're done 
this is either the cause or not the cause of back pain. Like we need somebody to just say, please stop researching this, right? My research is the pinnacle of all the research. And I looked at all of the research and we need to stop doing this research. Right? So we're, we're waiting for that to happen. Uh, the topic of centralization and directional preference was briefly touched upon while I was in PT school, and the topic of the transverse abdominis was hammered into us. Gosh, I could totally tell you how to palpate a transverse abdominis and, and tell when you're using the superficial muscles to, to try to contract your larger... To, it is, gosh. Now it appears that centralization and directional preference are being taught more in PT schools based on the students that I get as a clinical instructor. So they at least understand the definition. You know, when... Um, when I was coming out of PT school, centralization, mind you, we're in school for like two two years, right? Centralization might have been talked about for, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and say five minutes out of two years. So students are now getting full lectures. And, and interesting, I, I gave a lecture on centralization and directional preference to um, modern pain care. So shout out to Jared and Mark. Um, they're doing great things, by the way. I uh, highly recommend them if you're looking for mentoring. Uh, so I gave a lecture to their one of their cohorts uh, two years back. I think it was before the pandemic or what have you. And it's now a, a lecture that I've turned into a lecture that I use for students when I go speak at universities. And hey, it's a lot of information. I don't know. It's like 40 articles on centralization and directional preference. So, and, you know, I summarize them kind of like what I'm doing here, but a lot faster. <laughs> okay. Uh, next quote, participants allocated to the McKenzie Method group attended an average of 5.4 plus or minus 2.5 treatment sessions over an average of 38.6 plus or minus 18.8 treatment days, while participants in the motor control group attended an average of 6.5 plus or minus 2.7 treatment sessions over a period of 47 plus or minus 22.7 treatment days. Um, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's not a huge difference, right? But on average, the patients who were treated with the McKenzie method were treated for one less visit and what is that, nine less days? And so that one less visit may not seem like much, but one less visit compounded over multiple patients at a cost of anywhere of $100 to $300 a visit that can save a lot of money in healthcare. All right. Um, all right, let me just read what I wrote. It doesn't look like a huge difference, but this indicates that those being treated by an MDT credentialed therapist, one less session was required. Okay, that's what I said. Think about this again. Each session is performed at a cost to insurance companies, uh, such as Medicare, of about $100. Okay, that number's come down just a little bit, you know, maybe $93. Uh, <laughs> at this point, each patient would save about $100 to insurance companies when seen by a credentialed MDT therapist over the course of the long run. This could have dramatic effects on the total cost of spending in the U.S. Okay, uh, that's kind of what I said in a nutshell. Um, for another article that actually touches on that, it's, uh, gosh, I don't know who the primary author is, but I know Mark Miller is a secondary author. Uh, it was in the, I believe, don't quote me on this, it's been a while since I've read it, Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy, and it had to do with the cost reduction of a mechanical evaluation by a credentialed uh, or a diploma therapist. And the percentage I'm pretty solid with, right? I'm pretty sure it was a 51%. Um, savings down in downstream costs over the course of a year. So like if you picture a patient coming into the clinic and they have back pain 
and uh, you know they, they they might go through the whole gamut of back pain care, right? You know, X-rays, MRIs, PTs, um, epidural steroid injections, uh, surgery, and some other medications in and about, right? And so patients who see uh, a credentialed and a trained MDT therapist first save fifty-one percent of those costs downstream, meaning that they don't need as many of the other services sure services is a good word i'll use uh services in healthcare that other patients need okay next boy this is going long <laughs> almost done all right next no statistically significant effect for treatment group for muscle thickness and an eight-week follow-up in a population of people reporting chronic low back pain classified with a directional preference. Global perceived improvement was the only secondary outcome that demonstrated a significant between-group difference which favored the McKenzie method. All right. So, real quick. There was no difference in muscle thickness, right? Which, no statistically significant difference, which means that patients who were treated with a directional preference plus patients who were treated with exercises to target that muscle had similar um, thickness of the muscle at the end of the study. And again, for a meathead, it's earth shattering because we are initially led to believe that training a muscle over the course of six weeks will start to lead to hypertrophy and we expect that muscle to get bigger, right? But the muscle can get bigger without actually training the muscle. So and that, and that's what we're seeing and, and whatever reason that is who knows okay could it be neural sure could it be vascular sure could it be the nerves could it be the blood sure um, but whatever that is we don't exactly know but um, it can happen right but if you look at the last sentence that I wrote there global perceived improvement was the only secondary outcome that demonstrated a significant between group difference which favored the McKenzie method. If there's a, an outcome that I care about, it's the patient's improvement, right? Has the patient improved? And if the patient believes that they've improved or the patient can demonstrate that they've improved through some sort of outcome measure, I like that, okay? And so this is the only one, the McKenzie method was the only only uh, intervention that demonstrated that improvement uh, at the end of the study. So. I'm not a huge fan of doing the um, transverse abdominis exercises, and you know, and, and I said that during this. You know, you can hear the sarcasm in my voice at some points. I'm rolling my eyes as I read this, uh, just because I've read the studies on transverse abdominis, and man, I'm just not there. You know, I've just, I, and I, I haven't been there. It's not something that I grew up with in this profession. You know, so I had it in school, but then my studies took a you know a 90 degree pivot and this was just something that I never understood I, I couldn't see how we made the jump from back pain to working your transverse abdominis and at least made that jump logically I can see the jump right it's smaller and people who have back pain therefore we should do this but there's been no follow-up studies that show cause and effect that this fixes anything. So I just, I can't make that jump yet. All right, let me read what I'm writing here because there was apparently still more left. Uh, the final piece of this is that those treated with MDT-based principles actually felt better than those receiving motor control exercises, otherwise known as core stabilization. 
Awesome. Talked about that already. You walk into any clinic in America, um, aside from those that are based in MDT, and you will see bridges, bird dogs, pull your belly into your spine exercises, and of course, the traditional hot pack in East Dim. Um, all right, I'm going to touch on that in a second because I mean, yeah, I laugh even as I say it. Uh, these types of treatments may not be the best. Ask your therapist how your back pain is classified. If they can't give you a straight and honest answer, you know, find a new therapist. All right, so I'm going to give you like my thought process has changed a lot um, since then. So I'm not going to poo poo all of these exercises. You know, bridges have a place, bird dogs have a place. Uh, pull your belly into your spine sure that has a place you know i mean if you look at old school steve reeves that was a beautiful pose or frank zane it, that vacuum pose is a beautiful beautiful pose right and so i'm not going to to say that p pulling your belly button towards your spine is a bad thing but if you're trying to fix your back pain it might not be a great thing right hot pack and Easton, it has its place um it's not a strong place but it has its place you know for some of those patients who have pain that is non-mechanical and is debilitating and it like they can't do anything and you use e-stem and they're like god i feel good even temporarily why not right let's let's give the patient some peace um let's let's use those things to get these patients more active and so back then man i was man i was a bull you were not changing my direction whatsoever um but you know six years later my direction has changed a little bit and you know some of us you know some of us even me a pig-headed therapist you know we can we we still learn and, and we're hope, hopefully changing our perspectives as the research comes out um all right this is a i, I actually bolded this quote in in what i wrote results from our study suggest that in patients with a directional preference Receiving exercises matched to their directional preference is likely to produce a greater sense of improvement than receiving motor control exercises. I think that's just where I'm going to leave it, right? So this um, this whole thing was taken from the research article by Halliday, Pappas, and Hancock, a randomized controlled trial comparing the McKenzie method to motor control exercises in people with chronic low back pain and a directional preference. Um, that's an interesting part because I didn't cover that part. Patients with chronic back pain can have a directional preference patients with chronic back pain can still centralize i'll touch on that i'll see if i can find that article there was a good article by um ron donaldson pmnr maybe 2012 ish but anyway the article that i was just talking about here the, the article that this whole podcast is about um came from the um jospt 2016 um pages 514 to 522 thanks for listening i hope you have a good day i hope you learned something from this um and if you got any comments you know leave a voice comment on the on the anchor app thanks have a good day